0: Back, everybody. I see a lot of people who have uh, are back for the third time now. That that is a real sign of commitment and interest in this subject. And a special welcome to those who are here now for the first time today. Um, Our theme for this third and final meeting of this seminar is Dietrich von Hildebrand as philosopher of the heart. And of beauty, there are actually two parts here: his philosophy of the heart, uh, and his aesthetics or philosophy of beauty, uh, forms a second, final part of today's meeting. And I thought it might be good if, like last time, I open with a brief summary of the ground we covered uh, in the last meeting. Uh, those who are new to the seminar may get a little connection, uh, and. Uh, The recapitulation can't hurt uh, for those who were here. So uh, let let me summarize it like this. Last time we saw that all moral philosophies connect the moral life with happiness, that is, with the real well-being of human persons. And of course, this real well-being is not to be identified with what Flint Hildebrand calls the merely subjectively satisfying. Now, some moral philosophies, as we saw, make the attainment of happiness the main point of the moral life. The distinctive thing about von Hildebrand's approach to the moral life is that this is a mistake. You can't make happiness the main point, a certain transcendence, self-transcendence, proper to the moral life is lost. There's a love of good for its own sake that belongs to the moral life and has to be acknowledged. um, And and this implies a certain priority of what von Hildebrand calls value response to uh, the full flourishing of persons that we call happiness. So he wants to um, vindicate a certain Moment of self transcendence that's easily lost in affirming the connection of the moral life with happiness. And uh, that I see as perhaps um, the main point of originality in his uh, moral philosophy. Now, in the last meeting, we also had some interesting issues about value, the objectivity of value, how one knows value, and those questions can course be revisited today in the discussion. Now well, I said at the end of the last meeting that there's one other contribution of von Hildebrand to moral philosophy that I wanted to share with you before I go into today's new topic and it is a contribution regarding the structure of moral evil. Let me um, Put it like this. When you look at the account of moral evil in Western philosophy, beginning with Socrates, you a certain perennial temptation, one might say, to give an, I would call it, intellectualist account of moral evil. That is, to think of moral evil in terms of a mistake being made about what's really good. So one uh, will say, uh, in the morally bad action, a lower good is mistakenly preferred to a higher good. And therein lies the disorder that makes the action morally bad. And the reason for this, um, uh, uh, what I'm calling uh, temptation to an intellectualist account, that is, to think of moral evil in terms of a mistake about what's really good, um, lies in this, that one wants to say the human will by its very nature, is ordered to what is good. the will is made for good, it naturally responds to good, so even in the morally wayward will, one still thinks well the will is still even at its worst uh, directed to good, so moral badness must lie in some mistake, some merely apparent good or some wrongly chosen lower good uh, but what Uh, never sounds quite right is that these accounts of moral evil uh, don't quite face up to the full reality of deliberate wrongdoing. That is wrongdoing where you know what you do is wrong. Where you can't appeal to some illusory good that has fascinated you and misled you, but where you do wrong in the full knowledge that what you do is wrong. Uh, That uh, remains, well, von Hildebrand thought insufficiently explained uh, in many traditional accounts of moral evil. Um, He would often point to uh, the famous passage in the Confessions of St. Augustine, where Augustine describes uh, the famous theft of the neighbor's pears. Uh, he lived next to a neighbor with a pear orchard, and he and his uh, friends uh, one evening uh, uh, wrecked the pear orchard, took all the pears, threw them away, had no interest in really eating them. and So Augustine reflects, what was it that made me take such malicious delight in destroying uh, my neighbor's property. And he says, well, was there something good there that I just wrongly pursued? No, he says, that doesn't sound right. I knew that this was wrong. And I even took a perverse delight in the very wrongness of it. So how does one? in one's philosophic reflection on such deliberate wrongdoing, how does one give a realistic account that doesn't sort of um, tend to bend uh, the morally bad action back into uh, some deception or illusion about what is really good. And this is where von Hildebrand's idea of what he calls uh, our capacity for pursuing something as merely subjectively satisfying uh, comes in as important remember i brought that out in the last meeting contrasting value response in von hildebrand with this interest in something that's merely subjectively satisfying and as i say um, not only is there a contrast with value response but even what we call the interest in one's own happiness that's um, Something of a much morally more serious character than this interest in what just gratifies me. And so Van Hildebrand uh, wants to say that it can happen that uh, the destruction of some good, uh, as in the case of the uh, of a young unconverted Augustine, still more a hoodlum than a saint, uh, it can happen that how uh, one finds the destruction of good, the desecration of some good, subjectively satisfying. And in that case, one can be very clear about the fact, yes, I know this is wrong. I'm not deceived. I'm not taking this under the aspect of good. I know this is wrong. And yet, I'm doing it all the same. And But Hildebrand tried to make sense of that in terms of this interest in the merely subjectively satisfying. That can take over and lead us to trample on uh, things of acknowledged goodness, acknowledged worthiness. And so with his view, the, the morally bad action isn't placed there. In the intellect with some mistake about good, but it's placed resolutely in the will, the will that perversely uh, just doesn't care what's really good and even uh, finds some subjective satisfaction in the destruction of it. So uh, I wanted just uh, to mention uh, that ancient problem might say, about the motivation of morally bad action. And what I take to be as a, a contribution of uh, von Hildebrand to, let's say, um, preserving a full realism about the deliberate wrongdoing that we're all capable of. So uh, perhaps that point is weighty enough um, to take some questions on it before we Get into the real heart of today's meeting uh, with von Hildebrand's philosophy of the heart. So, uh, if Yes, please.
1: Yes. Just, a, just a point of clarification. von Hildebrand wouldn't say that one, could, that one actually wills um, anything that he but He wouldn't say that
0: it's, possible, it's even possible to will the. No, but he, but he does say it is possible to find evil or the destruction of good subjectively satisfying. Okay. To that extent, it uh, can be willed, yeah, even I mean, in the knowledge that um, but the good the connection is being destroyed.
1: Between the will and, I guess,
0: the, the subjective yeah. desire. Yeah. Well, for von you might say, the most fundamental exercise of our moral freedom is this decision to turn to value and to venerate it, let ourselves and our action be measured by it, or to uh, live for what's subjectively satisfying, in contempt of uh, everything of value. And that, uh, for him, uh, is a kind of a primordial Moral choice uh, that stands at the center of each moral life. So uh, uh, it's, um, it's a, uh, a fundamental freedom uh, in uh, turning to the good and willing to be judged by it uh, and enlisted into the service of it or turning away from it, holding it in contempt and just. Asserting oneself and living by the merely subjectively satisfying. No choice that we make in the moral life is more fundamental than that in his
2: uh, vision. I have a question. Yeah. I mean, it seemed to me that you could describe the destruction of the pear tree as giving Augustine great power. Is yeah. that a subjective satisfaction? Yeah. We have the power to distribution of, yes. of parents. Yeah, it, Is you that a sense of I power. Mean, I'm, I'm trying to
3: between right. what I think
2: might or could happen yeah. and what you're describing right. it as. Right. Is that a subjective satisfaction?
0: Well, yeah. Van Hildebrand would say, let's try the other kinds of good. Was it value? No, there was no value-responding interest in power, because otherwise he wouldn't have been so glad to use it to destroy Is that power thought of as objectively good for Augustine. And again, when Hildebrand says, no, he's not really interested. There's a moment at which you so much don't care what's really good that you're not even really interested in what makes you really flourish and makes you truly happy. So he would say this interest in power was under the aspect of something merely subjectively satisfying. that, uh, and as I say, um, th- that, that way of putting it puts um, the morally bad action very much in the will, and the perversity of the will. And it avoids the temptation of thinking, well, the intellect has been a little blinded, and thereby misled into morally bad action. Uh, it's a disease of the will in the first place. Von Hildebrand holds somehow make sense of that uh, by this idea of the merely subjectively satisfying as a a way of being interested in something that is is certainly not the only response, but also not the interest in one's real well-being. Yes,
1: So Hildebrand argues that it's possible Mm -hmm. we have real cases of people willing certain actions not for the sake of the good, but for the sake of something else. You said that the other alternatives do it to be safely subjectively satisfying. Yeah. I'm wondering would he go so far as to say that people can act directly for the sake of evil for bad or wickedness? Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well and I think Freud. Was I, yeah. It's like yeah. Evans' question, uh, I think. And so friends, says no evil understood as evil isn't choosable, but evil understood as evil may well be. Somehow subjectively satisfying for and when it is, it becomes choosable. Like that is Just his view. Is, is, is uh, feeling of power? Let's
3: yeah. say that that was what he yeah. got out of the right.
2: It Would you describe that as a subjective
0: satisfaction? Von Hildebrand certainly would. Yeah, he, 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 he would one. say. Right. There are three, if you ask about the motivation of Augustine or of anybody in any set of circumstances, there are basically three options. There's the value point of view, the point of view of what's really objectively beneficial for a person, or the point of view of what's merely subjectively satisfying. And he would say it's quite incontestable that in this case of Augustine it was and merely subjectively satisfied. The interesting thing about the passage is that Augustine reviews the possibility of certain objective goods and says, well, was that the thing that moved me? And he sets it all aside and ends with great perplexity about his uh, motivation. All right. Uh, Not that we've exhausted uh, that subject, but let's um, uh, turn to uh, our issue for today, uh, and the first part of it, Van Hildebrand as philosopher of the heart. Now, here I link up with uh, uh, a part of my public lecture on Tuesday evening that some of you may have heard. Uh, Van Hildebrand, uh thinks that the heart, by which he means the center of affective life in human persons, is in need of rehabilitation. He thinks that in the history of Western philosophy, the heart has been too often depreciated, not given its due. And in particular, he says that the dominant view in Western philosophy has been that Man is distinguished above all the animals by two things, by his power of intellectual understanding and his power of free will. And von Hildebrand then presses the question, well, if we've got these two powers of understanding and free will, where do we place the deepest stirrings of the human heart? So for instance, What do we make of the grief that consumes King Lear when his daughter Cordelia uh, dies at the end? Or where do we place the joy of parents at the birth of a child? This grief and this joy, these affective experiences, are not just intellectual uh, understandings. But they're also not just acts of the will either. Uh, their affective character makes them something different. Now, Hildebrand thinks that the tendency Western philosophy has been, when one thinks about affectivity and sees that it's neither intellect or will or the two together, uh, the tendency has been to think that well. Our affectivity is a kind of unruly, appetitive energy that comes out of the body. Uh, and it's very human, this appetitive side, this affectivity. But um, uh, at first, it is unruly and disordered. And it's uh, the work of the intellect and will to um, govern in, orderly way, uh, our affectivity. Uh, and so on, on this view, it remains the case, the heart as the center of affectivity is still something quite subordinate to intellect and will. Now, the position of von Hildebrand is uh, that uh, there's something reductionist going on here. To go back to our first meeting, where we talked about the danger of reductionism in philosophy, um, characteristic it is for him, as phenomenologist to resist reductionism. there's something reductionist going on here he, he He wants to say certain affective experiences really are the full equal of intellect and will. They are just as eminent an expression of the human person as some act of intellectual understanding or some act of free will. Uh, so th- the grief of Lear, say, the joy of the new parent. Uh, these are acts of the person that are neither intellect, neither will. But they're also not uh, some, something bodily from below. Uh, we really ought to think, what Hildebrand says, of there being in the human person not two main centers of properly personal life, namely intellect and will. We should think of three intellect, will, and heart. That is a more adequate view of the human person, he argues. And um, though he owes a great deal to his teacher, Max Schaler, um, there's a great deal of original thought of his own in this um, rehabilitation of the heart. Uh, Let me uh, gather from various writings of Hildebrand four reasons why uh, the heart has its own, you might say, properly personal dignity. Uh, It's not as if it's somehow fundamentally lower uh, with intellect and will uh, ordering uh, some bodily appetitive energy. Uh, so four reasons that um, uh, taken all together for Van Hildebrand uh, are supposed to rehabilitate um, affectivity and show that it really uh, uh, is as much, cer- certain forms of affective life, as much the signature of the person, as, as expressive of man as person, as intellect or will. Now, he argues first that um, many affective experiences are motivated. That is, they're based on something understood. Right? Lear understands that his daughter is dead. And understanding that grieves. Or the parents understand that a new their child has been born and rejoice over what they understand. So many affective experiences are motivated, based on some understanding. And that already imparts a certain um, personal dignity to them. Now, admittedly, von Hildebrand says there are plenty of affective experiences that are not really motivated. For instance, the euphoria caused by alcohol. It's not motivated. The euphoria is not about something doesn't have a motivating object. Uh, It's simply caused. It has natural causes. Uh, And so depression, too, can have its own natural causes and not be motivated by any understood sorrow. So there is, in the affective life, uh, forms of affectivity that are undeniably caused. and, And being caused, they exist at a lower level you might say, in the makeup of a human person. But there are also many an effective experience which are motivated, based on something understood about good and bad. Those uh, motivated, affective experiences um, have something distinctively personal uh, about them. Hildebrand, following the phenomenologists, distinguished very much between what we undergo as a result of natural causes and what motivates us on the basis of what we understand. And uh, clearly, you're into the real life of the person, only with that motivated uh, kind of acting. So that's the first. Um, Thought that often occurs in his writings as he goes about this work of rehabilitating our affective life. And here's a second one. Wow. He argues that many a deep ardent affective response is not only motivated, but also motivated by some perceived value. It is therefore a value response. and. For all its affective ardor, still has, you might say, that meaningfulness or rationality of what, uh, of, of any value response. So uh, for instance, that the light of the parents in the birth of their child you know, is, in part, a value response. There's some perceived value in this new human being uh, of which they are the parents. And that uh, uh, perceived value gives rise to, you could say it engenders the delight, the grateful delight of the parents, the grateful delight an intense affective experience. But the affectivity is not only motivated, it has a form of value response. And therefore, all of the self transcendence of value response that we've talked about uh, is found here, right at the heart of these affective uh, experiences. So uh, there's actually a, a point that, that I'll break for some questions uh, on this. There's a point about the value that um, uh, I made last time that ought to be made again here when we talk about the heart the possibility you might say of value responding um, uh, acts of the heart Uh, you remember when I uh, mentioned value uh, this inner worth or dignity of a thing and I said for von Hildebrand everything of value gives off some beauty there is this splendor or radiance uh, proper to everything of value, and we typically call that splendor the beauty of a thing. Now, uh, the beauty is significant because uh, it is uh, precisely something that fills us with delight when we experience. Very strange to have a purely intellectual apprehension of something beautiful, but it affects us and fills us with delight uh, through its beauty. And so uh, for von Hildebrand, uh, this, um, these value-responding affections uh, that he focuses on, they, um, they've, they've got their basis in the beauty given off by value this radiance of beauty that everything of value has. So I think one ought to match up uh, his thought about value and beauty, on the one hand, and this capacity of the heart to uh, give a value response, an affectively ardent value response. It's always some glimpse of the beauty of that which one responds to. what makes that kind of affection possible. All right, so those are two uh, thoughts. Now, bear in mind, when I mean, Hildebrand is not here to say that there are not plenty of uh, very uh, disordered, affective experiences. There's hysteria, you know. there's sentimentality, there's uncontrolled rage, there's all kinds of uh, uh, disordered affectivity. He's not denying that obvious fact, but he wants to say there's also uh, a region of affective life uh, that has this inner order, of being motivated by something understood, and even in some cases, being motivated by a perceived value. And such affections. Uh, are cut from another cloth and have to be appreciated in the uh, eminently personal character that they have. Yeah, so there's something here to discuss, if if only to keep me from talking too long without interruption. Uh, Go ahead and raise it. No. Uh, all right. Uh, yes. Uh, Brad, you.
1: Um, yeah. I'm wondering about this. Uh, it seems pretty easy to see the legacy move uh-huh. on from Holmgren back to Shaler. Mm-hmm. but then even back to people like Pascal and, of course, yeah. then then Augustine. Yeah. And one of the things you've been stressing is this relationship between the, the will yeah. and the emotions. Yeah. But, but Pascal for you I know, well. I think mean, the intellects in relation yes. to the heart and the emotion. Right. Yeah. I'm wondering maybe uh, if you talk about that, maybe if, what, what maybe von Hildegrand would, would say to kind of the famous yeah. adage, the famous follow that passed out the, father, the past, kind of yeah. hardest reasons, the reasons yeah. that are not there. Yeah. There's yeah, this yeah. kind of un, unreachable level of the heart that maybe the intellect itself can be.
0: Yeah, no, that. Um, That thought of Pascal about the heart, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing, is um, very congenial to him. You mentioned Augustine, and um, this is part of uh, what's behind the Augustinian stamp of Hildebrand's whole philosophy. He saw in Augustine um, a forerunner of his own philosophy of the heart and of affectivity. There's that passage in the um, City of God of Augustine where he's in debate with the Stoics, uh, you know, with their famous ideal of apathy, of remaining indifferent in the face of all the blows that life delivers. And Augustine, um, against the Stoics, says, no, a fully alive human being uh, has strong affections. And you, you somehow neuter the human being. You produce a cripple. If you, uh, in the name of stoic apathy, uh, try to uh, kill all strong affectivity. So, in those and other passages, um, Augustine seems to look toward uh, that rehabilitation of the heart that is such a big theme in, uh, here in Bernhildebrandt. Yeah, so, well, then let me, yeah, please, please. going through um, your points, you said about not not motivated. Mm-hmm. And you compared that to depression. I, I really thought that depression was motivated. Well, yeah. OK, good question. Well, that's a very thoughtful question. Um, I, I don't know if it got picked up there uh, by the camera whether depression, which I had mentioned as is non-motivated, uh, isn't after all really motivated. Uh, and um, I, I, I think. An answer in the spirit of Van Hildebrand would be that surely there exists both kinds of depression. There exists um, a, a, a caused depression, you know the one that goes with the hangover, say that like the euphoria had its causes, so the hangover has its causes, and there are other kinds of so-called organic depression. But then on the other hand, there is um, if you want to call that depression, that sense of despondency motivated by some, uh, some, some evil that I've understood, some evil oppressing me that I'm aware of. And so then the depression is motivated. So I think uh, von Hildebrand would say that under the name depression, you would sometimes find merely caused affective states and sometimes find properly motivated ones. It's obviously pretty important that the psychiatrist get that right. You know, if, he, uh, if it's motivated, and he throws medication at you. He's not helping. On the other hand, if it's not motivated and he enters into elaborate counseling, again, he's missed the mark. So for the fruitful practice of psychological counseling, psychiatric care, this discrimination between what is Motivated and what's merely caused is all important. Well, the, that maybe leads in another direction for Van Hildebrandt. It's the existence of motivated affections as an evidence of a region of uh, affections that really belong to us as persons uh, and express uh, our existence as persons. Now,
2: Here's a third
0: point, a really um, intriguing uh, point about affectivity. By the way, um, if this topic interests you, you might look at his book uh, The Heart. It's uh, a product of the von Hildebrand Legacy Project. Um, actually, the, the very first uh, reprint that we produced, The Heart, St. Augustine's Press in South Bend. Uh, and it, gives a very readable, uh, without doesn't require a lot of philosophical training, um, very readable uh, introduction to his uh, rehabilitation of the heart. Well, in that work, um, he makes the interesting claim that the heart, in a sense, represents, as he says, the real self of each person. And what he meant was this. Uh, I touched on this in the public lecture too, so forgive me if you have some overlap here. Uh, But what he meant was a certain contrast with the will. If um, somebody wills to benefit you uh, and wills, uh, holds nothing back, is willing to do anything for your good, but is not affectively engaged takes no delight in you you don't feel like uh you've that, that the person is really giving himself he's holding something back he's not or she is not fully present in that engagement of the will there's a, a full presence of the person that comes only with the affective. Uh, Involvement. And uh, that is uh, a a really uh, uh, significant fact. And and even a a person won't feel, you know, a child, um, you do everything for it, provide for all its needs, spare no sacrifice. But if the child senses there's a resolute, conscientious will at work. But there's no heart taking delight in this child, then it um, feels somehow um, deprived, as if uh, the person holds something back and and refuses to be fully present to me. You, you have to have some feeling with another person in order to be fully present. So that capacity of our affective life to, as it were, awaken and express the real self of the person. Uh, that Manilbrand um, shows a certain excellence there in the heart, even over against the will, for all of its grandeur as the center of freedom, and self-determination, we're talking about the great moral choice in the moral life. Uh, a little earlier today, so he highly esteems the will, but still he he wants to say um, acting toward another only on the basis of a resolute benevolent will, no engagement of the heart, is to hold something back and refuse to be fully present to the other. There's a full presence, the other only possible with the involvement of the heart, and that he thinks um, helps to show the, uh, uh, the let's say the eminent personal significance of the heart and here is one fourth I said there were four here's the fourth that um, is related to this uh, third one and It is that, for Van Hildebrand, love uh, is necessarily an affective uh, relation to the beloved person. Now, of course, also, there is a commitment of the will, clearly, uh, to the beloved person. And in every bond of love with another human being, there are moments of affective dryness, where Uh, The will sustains the relation uh, clearly, but but Hildebrand wants to say if in your relation to another you never take any affective delight in the other, uh, you don't love the other. You may be the supreme benefactor of the other, but love it is not if there isn't some affective Delighting in the uh, beloved person, there's a certain warmth of love that requires this affective uh, involvement, and so it's clearly related to the third point. uh, The relating relation of love to another uh, engages the full real self. Of the one who loves. And that is uh, possible only uh, with some uh, feeling for the beloved person. So, for for Hildebrand, the the argument here in in the fourth point is this that, look, love, we're assuming that is an eminently personal act. is one of the great achievements of any person really to love another? But now look, love is necessarily affective. That shows the uh, ability of our affectivity to be eminently personal. Uh, so uh, those are the. Let me just go over them. The. that the, Many affective experiences are motivated, not just caused. That some are real value responses. That in the affective response, the real self of the person is engaged in a way in which it can't be engaged apart from our affective life. And finally, that love is not exclusively, but necessarily also. An effective uh, response, so that the significance and dignity of love as a personal act helps to uh, show forth the uh, potential of the human heart. So that uh, uh, is the. Uh, uh, a good part of his grief uh, for the human heart, of his work of trying to rehabilitate uh, the human heart, and uh, 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 repeat, um, he is not denying uh, uh, immature pathological, highly disordered, and so on, and so on, forms of affectivity. It's just that um, he, uh, after all, he he makes a good point that at the level of our intellectual life, you have all kinds of pathologies. You know, um, the statement of Cicero, there is no idea so absurd that some philosopher hasn't defended it. So at the level of intellectual life, you have the, the highly disordered the reckless, the bizarre. Uh, uh, And and yet one still wants to say, but the intellect, that's the crown jewel in human nature. Well, uh, we shouldn't be deterred from seeing the dignity of the heart uh, simply by these disordered forms. Just as the intellect has this wonderful power of understanding, so the heart exists in these eminently personal forms. That's the Hildebrandian idea uh, that, um, as I say, I I, I reckon that to one of the major contributions of him to um, uh, philosophy, one of the enduring uh, contributions. Yeah, please, Alan.
1: Have there been? Serious philosophical positions taken that assert that love should not involve affect, or that yeah. love the relations between persons should be impersonal. That's the first thing you're arguing against. Yeah. Is there anyone, it's just very yeah. straightforward. Yeah. It's, it's like anyone would agree with. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, um, there are uh, many uh, who, who say, uh, well, you know, you certainly hear it all the time uh, in um, in homilies and sermons. I don't know how it is in the uh, Jewish world, but uh, uh, you know, the sermon opens like this. Uh, yeah. you now, listen. We all tend to think that love is a matter of feeling. Let me tell you, it's a thing of the will. You know, and that um, playing off of will against the heart is the theme of. Yeah, discussion of love that uh, that 's very common now at the level of philosophers, there are uh, plenty who um, uh, would uh, take that uh, homiletic theme and you know in principle say it is even um, uh, I would say for the most part there's a, an amazing congruence of Hildebrand <laughs> with Carol Wojtyla. but Wojtyla, um in talking about the place of the will in love, goes much farther than Van Hildebrand does and does not give the heart the same place uh, that Van Hildebrand does. So there's a certain difference, at least, of emphasis between those two otherwise so closely kindred spirits. Yeah. Um, please.
3: How does von Hildebrand um, I don't know if he does address this, but when you think of love of neighbor, Mm. and you think of, as Christ said in the gospel, you have to love your enemy. How does Hildebrand say that you're able Mm. to love someone that might be doing real harm to you? I mean, take the example of of his experience. um, Vienna, when the Nazis were persecuting him, would he say well, they look for something beautiful in that person, and each yeah. person is beautiful because they have human dignity? Or yeah. how, how, yeah. how did you reconcile that? Because obviously, it's, yeah. you need know, to love those who are lovable. But yeah. I've always thought right. of love of neighbor <laughs> as being really an act of the
0: will. And, and yeah. Well, you know, you could think about the famous um, uh, example of love of neighbor that Christ gives in the gospel, the good Samaritan. Uh, you know, And uh, I think we have to imagine that the uh, good Samaritan doesn't just help uh, out of a stern sense of duty, you know, driven by a well-ordered will, but that he must have felt some compassion with the wounded man. There must have been some affective dimension to his care for that person, uh, and, and Hildebrand would say, and, and, and that's an essential part of uh, the concern of a good Samaritan being real love. If uh, you know uh, he were a resolute follower, uh, you know, always acts on principle and does the right thing and wills it with the will, but untouched by compassion, it wouldn't count as love of neighbor. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you bring up the even harder case, though, of the love of enemy. And of course, some um, affective dimension there is usually blocked by the fact that he's trying to hurt you <laughs> and you have to defend yourself. And so that sort of undermines the uh, situation of uh, you know, any affective delight uh, in that person. But you know, he does sometimes speak of the fact that even even a Hitler is uh, you know, a person and has this image of God. And uh, there's a struggle for his soul, too, and the desire to see him come to his moral senses. And uh, so I, I think with the love of enemy, um, the affective dimension um, is typically blocked uh, you know, by the combat situation that you commonly find yourself in. But um, other forms of love of neighbor, as with the Good Samaritan, I think, um, it, there it's not hard to find the uh, an effective dimension without which it wouldn't uh, be the full thing of love. Yeah, uh, Dr. Rice.
2: Just uh, looking at what you're talking about with love of friendship and love of enemies, if you go to Thomas Aquinas, yeah. the, the love of friendship and love of enemies seems to be something much more objective in terms of the common good that you're aiming at. Mm-hmm. and one can have an enemy in the family. And one would presume that toward a family a family member, there would be a deep reservoir of affectivity. Uh, so how does one reconcile von Hildebrand's point of view, or does one with the objectivist point of view, that love of enemy and love of friendship are determined objectively according to end, yeah. whereas you've got this affective dimension?
0: Uh, yeah. Stay with the love of friendship for a moment. Uh, uh, friends, for all that you want to say about the objective nature of the friendship and the common goods that unite them, they take delight the in each other's company. And if they don't, then it's not quite friendship. So von Hildebrand would argue that so this affective dimension um, has its place even. Next to these objective structures of say, parental love or uh, love between friends.
2: Would it be possible to reconcile the two perspectives by pointing out that the, the affectivity that would be present in what would be called love of enemy would not be an affectivity which would be based on the, the nucleus of the, or based on the, the area of the problem in the relationship? It would be based on something else in the relationship that that would be had in common still, despite the disagreement, despite the the of yeah. events. Yeah. Yeah. And so perhaps uh, perhaps we could bring the whole thing back together by distinguishing uh, different levels of affectivity and different levels of uh, directionality in the friendship or the yeah. relation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think um, uh, that that that's certainly. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, 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 I, if I'm hearing you right, that's not—you don't mean that exactly in disagreement with, with Hildebrand, but no,
2: as, I'm trying to—I'm trying to see yeah. uh, because I think what von Hildebrand is saying is, is uh, phenomenologically seems to be correct yeah. because it—it it seems that that's the way we we look at friendships. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking back to to the third-person account that Thomas is giving, right. and I'm wondering how to bring them together. Because yeah. I don't think they should diverge yeah, right. if they're both correct. Right, right. And uh, I don't see a reason to doubt yeah. von Hildebrand's point of view. Yes.
0: Right. Well, certainly the um, famous account of friendship that Aristotle gives and that Aquinas builds on, is in, it was greatly admired by von Hildebrand. He thought that you could uh, discern between the lines the different dimensions of affectivity that uh, impart a certain warmth to the friendship and are really uh, essential to it, the friendship. Yeah, I think we're, uh, are we at our uh, break time? Uh, I, I think um, we should take our usual 15 or so minute uh, break and we'll uh, get into some issues of Von Hildebrand on beauty at the end. All right, well, to the final act here of our uh, little seminar on von Hildebrand. Uh, I'm coming uh, to some uh, main ideas of von Hildebrand on beauty, with which we'll close. But uh, two more things on this subject of the heart. Uh, Von Hildebrand considers the following objection to his high esteem for the heart. Uh, The objection says, look, uh, the affections uh, of a person are not in his or her control. So we often say, I wish I could feel compassion, but I can't. Or you go to condole someone and you a little empty because you have the words of condolence but you don't feel much and it's really not in your power to summon the feeling and so the fact that our effective life is not subject to our control and comes and goes it seems on its own uh, timeline uh, that seems to make it perhaps not fully personal. We don't seem really to own it. It seems to befall us and then to leave us, but um, not really subject to our choice. And so von Hildebrand considers whether that um, lack of freedom with respect to our deepest affectivity um, is a sign that it's, after all, uh, something inferior in the person. Uh, and. He uh, responds with a very intriguing concept that, uh, again, represents uh, a real contribution of his, and that is the concept of what he calls sanctioning and affection. So it's true, I can't um, feel compassion uh, on demand. But when it comes, when the compassion arises, I can... As he says, sanctified. that is, I can own it. I can somehow um, make it my own and put myself there in the position of one who feels compassion. So that it doesn't just befall me uh, and um, affect me. Uh, and so there's not just something that happens to me. It gets incorporated, you might say, these deep affections into the person, through the person, sanctioning, uh, the, and and that sanction, Vanillbrand says, is not an external kind of control, but it's um, an owning of the affection from within. So that's um, a, a, a rich idea, and and he makes the point that to you know really be alive as person, you can't just let Feelings sort of surge over you and come and go, but the well-ordered feelings have to be taken over, owned, sanctioned. Only then are you have you fully personalized, so to say, your uh, affective life. So that's uh, one uh, idea uh, from his discussion of affectivity that I wanted to mention. And here's one other one. This. His book on the nature of love. You now I've mentioned that for von Hildebrand, love has this intrinsically affective dimension, and you can't have an affectively dead love. The will can't jump in and compensate and make the love to be love. Um, you now, in his um, treatise on the nature of love, he considers many objections to um, love, but one in particular that I'd like to um, bring up and just uh, set you thinking about. Uh, it, as I say, it uh, uh, seems to me a, a very fascinating idea in, in Van Hildebrandt. Many people say love is blind. Uh, there's uh, an American um, living philosopher, Harry Frankfurt, yeah. who says, look, love um, isn't motivated, like people like Van Hildebrand say, by some value perceived in the beloved person. Frankfurt says what happens is first comes love, and then you acquire this illusion of beauty in the beloved person. Uh, So the love is blind. It just arises uh, in a blind and erratic way. And then the thought that the beloved person has some goodness or beauty, why, that's a kind of um, subsequent illusion caused by the love. Now that, if true, would deal quite a blow to the idea that love is motivated. Uh, It it would um, put seriously in question this, um, let's say, personal dignity of love. And so von Hildebrand gives attention to uh, this challenge that love is blind. And he gives particular attention to one argument that's often made. People say, look, when you love another person, uh, and somebody asks you, well, why do you love the other person? You're usually at a loss. You really don't have anything very helpful to say why you love this person. Uh, especially in connection with the love of friendship or the love between man and woman. And you, well, you mention maybe uh, this or that quality, but you somehow know that's not really why I love the other. And so people like Frankfurt say, uh, the reason why you're speechless when asked why you love a person is that there is no reason. Love has no reason. It's irrational. And therefore, uh, after all, not really situated in the life of the person. And um, van Hildebrand, in his treatise on love, has um, a very, I think, profound response uh, to uh, that objection. He says, it's true. You and I are at a loss when asked why we love someone. But the reason is not that uh, there's no perceived beauty in the beloved person. The reason is that what we love is always this individual person. We don't just love certain abstract qualities that uh, a person has and shares with many other persons. But what we love is this person in all his or her individuality. And there is, when we love another, a sense that, uh, that, that uh, uh, a sense of a, of a beauty, proper to this, unrepeatable person. Uh, that's a real motive for love. That, when seen, and experienced, engenders, uh, love with all of its affectivity. And the reason why we're at a loss when asked, why do you love? is that the value and beauty of the beloved person is too individual to be uttered. You see, all of our language works with general terms, general concepts. So if we try to say why we love somebody, we mention this and that quality. But other people have that quality, too. So why doesn't our love transfer to the others, too? No, our love is for this person. And And and, and the beauty that awakens the love is a beauty proper to and uh, uh, radiating from this person in all his or her uniqueness. And there is something, um, as philosophers have long known, something ineffable about the radical individual. Because as I say, our language works with general terms that can be predicated of many. Uh, But when you come to this individual himself and no other Uh, then uh, our language breaks down and we stammer Uh, but in love it's not that there's not a real motive of love it's just that it's ineffable and unutterable tied up as it is with the individuality of the the beloved person Uh, so that uh, theme of uh, loving person's not because they uh, have some lovable quality that, in principle, lots of people have, but because they are this unrepeatable person and this one have a certain uh, beauty all their own, That uh, the brand, uh, lets us somehow keep intact the idea that love is motivated by an experienced beauty, even though we um, are at such a loss when asked to give an account of our love. So that's also I wanted to bring in. And and, uh, there may be something uh, here that is worth discussion before I conclude with something on beauty and hologram. He uses the phrase in his treatise on love. He says, when another, there is what he calls the full thematicity of the beloved person. That's a phrase difficult to understand at first. But what he means is that the person is present and loved in all his or her individuality. That's this full thematicity. So you don't just take the person as an instance of some lovable quality. Then you begin to lose the individual. If it's a replaceable instance, then your love can wander to other better instances of the same quality. But um, it, it's not some communicable quality that founds uh, the love, but uh, this, um, I think, unrepeatable beauty of this unrepeatable person. Uh, and so in that way, he harmonizes, as I say, the fully motivated and value-responding character of love with. Uh, our stammering when asked to account for our love. All right, then, uh, I had committed myself to saying something about Von Hildebrand on beauty, on the heart and on beauty. Yes?
4: Uh, I there's one question about uh, love before we move on, if yeah. I may. This is from Samantha, who asked, uh, if we have answers as to why we love another, are we then objectifying the beloved? No. Is there something um. wrong with being able to give a reason? <laughs> well, it's not a um, romantic answer. In,
0: in, in principle, uh, if, um, if if we had the power to utter the uh, concrete individual, then I don't think um, uh, there would be any objectifying violence done to the person. It's just that uh, it's always that turn to something general and universal when we predicate something of someone. So the person, uh, in a way, escapes us. But, um, um, yeah, so I I don't think the very idea of giving some utterance to the mystery of a person is unworthy of the person. It's just not available to us human beings. way our language is tied to general terms. Uh, So it seems to me. Now to the um, aesthetics of von Hildebrand, um, as I mentioned he, um, in my public lecture, he had at the end of his life, he uh, was over 80, he had a kind of burst of creative energy and um, a treatise on aesthetics. Theory and philosophy of beauty that had been growing in him all his life. Um, he wrote it out by hand, a thousand pages in typescript um, in less than a year. Um, uh, but as I say, it was something fermenting in his mind and heart from his earliest years. And uh, so I want to just pick out really um, um, uh, one fundamental insight of. Is regarding beauty, uh, an idea that has a certain fascination to it, and I think will um, and it also puts on display um, the phenomenological orientation of Van Hildebrand, of which I spoke in our very first meeting. So, and by the way, uh, for a short introduction to the uh, aesthetics, the thought of Van Hildebrand on art and beauty. Um, There's no better essay than this one called Beauty in the Light of the Redemption. The essay is not as theological um, an essay as it may sound to be. It's a primarily philosophical uh, study. And it's one of those writings of his that we have online. Now, uh, in his aesthetics, he makes a fundamental division within the world of beauty. Um, We have, on the one hand, what he calls metaphysical beauty, and on the other hand, what he calls the beauty of visible and audible form. So beauty, say, of a melody, of a landscape. Uh, So let me just explain that distinction and then focus on this. intriguing thing that he brought to light uh, with regard to the beauty of visible and audible form. Now, as for the metaphysical beauty, we're already familiar with it because for van Hildebrand, whenever something of value is perceived in its splendor, um, we, we have metaphysical beauty. Metaphysical beauty is simply that beauty that exists as the fragrance or radiance of some value in his special sense of value, as explained. Uh, So like uh, the beauty, say, of uh, a noble person. Uh, There's first the moral stature, the moral excellence. And as we come to understand that, we uh, also understand a certain splendor uh, that fills us with admiration. Uh, and that's metaphysical beauty. Uh, uh, this um, radiance found in connection with everything of value. And, and there is similarly m- m- metaphysical ugliness. So uh, the, the, the selfishness of a person, the grasping selfishness as an ugliness all of its own. Uh, Van Hildebrand, in his uh, papers written against Hitler in the 30s, of which I spoke often, speaks of a certain stench of moral evil, capturing the aesthetic uh, uh, radiance of of evil, uh, but in all uh, that is good and worthy, there's this radiance of beauty. That's uh, metaphysical uh, beauty, and as I Mention if you, let me just mention it again in case you were not at the public lecture. Um, this uh, metaphysical beauty uh, played a tremendous role in von Hildebrand's own conversion. He um, uh, tells us that it was uh, the supernatural beauty that he discerned in the saints that really fired his imagination and uh, brought on his conversion. And that um, supernatural beauty, that too is in the order of metaphysical beauty in the sense of his aesthetics. Because obviously, the saints weren't like works of art, um, as if beauty were the main thing about them. Um, They were holy. And uh, in that holiness, uh, though, there was this radiance of beauty. And seeing and feeling that, uh, Van Hildebrand was Uh, more than by any other factor drawn uh, to his conversion to uh, Catholicism. So one can discern here a connection between this metaphysical beauty and the heart. It was a conversion not uh, of a highly intellectual uh, kind with lots of argument, but one where the heart played uh, a distinct role. Now, uh, that's the one uh, kind of beauty that von Hildebrand discusses in his aesthetics. And then there is um, and that's the other one, the beauty of visible and audible form. So, for instance, the um, beauty, say of a deer, uh, you know, a um, beauty that, say, a hippopotamus does not in the same way have. Uh, or the uh, singing of a nightingale that has a beauty that you know the screeching of a breaking car uh, doesn't have. So there is, with visible and audible form, uh, beauty, and not only in art but also uh, in nature. And uh, this um, beauty of visible and audible form uh, is is different from metaphysical beauty because. It's not the radiance of some other value. It's not like with um, uh, you know, the noble person who, whose beauty we see and feel. Um, but here, the beautiful form has aesthetic value. There's no underlying value, the radiance of which the beauty would be. Uh, and, and this is where we might, more than any place else, tend to speak of aesthetic values, the aesthetic value of visible and audible form. is a very natural way of speaking. And it doesn't sound, maybe, quite right to speak of aesthetic value there with uh, metaphysical uh, value. Uh, now, what I want to uh, show you in von Hildebrand is a certain thought he has about the Beauty of visible and audible form—at least about the beauty we sometimes find in certain visible and audible forms. Take okay. um, the, say, some glorious sunset, uh, or what they call this the alpenglühen—the Alps glowing uh, in the setting sun. They're are settings in nature like this, that um, when you experience them, leave you speechless. We're in the domain here, mainly of visible form, Uh, but also a, a melody, a melody of Schubert or Mozart can have an unearthly beauty. And you experience it shuddering mysteriously in yourself in the aesthetic experience. Now, Van Hildebrand um, wants to focus on uh, the beauty of visible and audible form that sometimes has this unearthly grandeur that uh, makes us shudder on experiencing it. draws us upward in a mysterious way. Uh, it, it, it's a dimension of beauty that's it, it's not, it's not found in every visible and audible form, like the loveliness of the deer, say, is uh, it's a visible form. But still, it's, nobody would gasp at the unearthly beauty of it. It's somehow naturally proportioned to this animal, but um, sometimes what is visible in nature or art or audible, um, has an unearthly beauty. And uh, von Hildebrand marvels at the fact that this beauty of certain visible and audible forms, so far exceeds, so far transcends the visible and audible form itself. So uh, often we're dealing like with audible form, just with simple notes. Uh, And so ontologically speaking, it's something very simple. It's not even alive. And yet it can, uh, as he says, be the bearer of this unearthly beauty. And so he marvels at the uh, discrepancy between uh, the visible form and the beauty that we experience in it. It's as if there's no proportion uh, between this unearthly beauty and the modesty of it the thing that displays the beauty. You see, with metaphysical beauty, you're never troubled by that disproportion. The radiance is always proportioned to the value uh, of whatever it is that is radiant with beauty. But but here, uh, you've got this um, astonishing disproportion. You have this beauty that um, seems to exceed altogether uh, the modesty of the bearer of it. I mean, the mountains, the light, uh, those are ontologically modest but, things, not, not even alive, alive, as I say. But they um, form a unity for a moment in which they give off uh, this heart-rending beauty. And Hildebrand is struck by and dwells on the disproportion between the unearthly beauty and the very earthly, ontologically modest character of the bearer of the beauty. Uh, and he uh, mentions two uh, wrong-headed ways of uh, thinking philosophically about this beauty. And, and both of these points, if um, you recall what we said at the beginning about the Dillibrandis phenomenologist, I think will um, strike you as um, being distinctly phenomenological. So, the one mistake that he often um, saw in authors in aesthetics was this to say, look, visible and audible forms being something ontologically very plain, can't be a source of very great beauty. It's only some modest beauty that is proportioned to them. So there's some illusion here, some misunderstanding. Um, But uh, what is visible and audible, being something just of the senses, uh, can't be expected to uh, display any very great beauty. Uh, and so on, on this view of one, somebody, the philosopher tries to talk us out of our sense of this excess of beauty in these cases. The other uh, approach that Wildebrand um, deals with uh, is basically the attempt to take this unearthly beauty of the visible and audible and press it into the paradigm of metaphysical beauty. Uh, uh, So uh, here one says that uh, when we see, let's say, the majestic mountain, um, he quotes an author who held this, it reminds you, the author says, of the immensity of God. And that's what is behind the unearthly beauty? So one tries to connect the visible and audible form with something of great metaphysical significance and say um, the beauty is, after all, understandable like all metaphysical beauty as the radiance of that um, great metaphysical reality. And it's interesting that Van Hildebrand, deeply religious man, deeply religious writer as he was, rejects. Theory. He says, it's just not in your and my experience of, let's say, the unearthly beauty of a Mozart melody that we're making some connection with some divine reality and thereby getting the beauty. Uh, you don't even have to be a believer, after all, to listen to Mozart and be moved by it. Uh, so. He thinks that this is an artificial construction. Uh, This is a typically unphenomenological move of taking a phenomenon and pressing it into a foreign paradigm. This is not metaphysical beauty. Um, The aesthetic experience here tells us that the beauty appears on this modest, sensible reality, something seen or heard, but has this mysterious grandeur. Fills us, like Wordsworth says, with intimations of immortality. Uh, And so he insists there's a discrepancy here. Don't try to paper that over. A mysterious discrepancy between the grandeur of the beauty and the modesty of the bearer of the beauty. Uh, And so he. uses this um, analogy, he says, it's as if certain visible and audible forms are capable of functioning like a pedestal on which something else rests. You see, when you've got um, the pedestal, well, the, the statue on it is not just the effluence of the pedestal, it's something entirely different placed there on the pedestal. and so. It's as if uh, these visible and audible forms become mysteriously, who knows why, uh, for a moment a pedestal on which something from above uh, uh, appears and moves us. But of course, as soon as the light changes or the melody is distorted a little, the uh, aesthetic power is completely dissipated. He even uh, uh, makes, uh, and maybe that's a, a more interesting analogy to, um, uh, to the sacraments in the Christian sense, that just as water, a very plain uh, earthly substance, uh, uh, is connected with this mysterious power of baptismal regeneration in the Christian understanding of, of baptism. so um, these visible and earthly forms, uh, uh, in a somewhat similar way, uh, are for a moment invested with a power that far exceeds their um, natural makeup. Uh, but um, it, it's, um, I, 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 in the end, the Hildebrand um, leaves this subject in mystery. He doesn't try to solve it or import a theological interpretation. He lets stand this, um, it's this mystery of um, the mysterious momentary eruption of uh, uh, something not, uh, as it were, from another world in the beautiful object. And he also um, is very sharp against um, a kind of puritanical religion that says, um, look, um, we're religiously serious people. We're not going to lose too much time with beautiful, audible, invisible forms. That's self-indulgent. We're serious believers and uh, have no need of that. And uh, Hildebrand thinks this, this The beauty of visible and audible form has, after all, a very great claim on the heart of the believer, that it is something to be cherished uh, and not puritanically disparaged. So um, that, um, in uh, a very compressed fashion, is uh, what he himself regarded as the, the most important single idea in his long treatise on aesthetics. And uh, it fills a number of chapters there and I'm giving it to you uh, in, uh, in its uh, simplest terms. But, uh, it is, uh, so, so we have the metaphysical beauty on the one side where the beauty is always understandably proportioned to um, its bearer and to the value of it, uh, and then uh, this beauty of some visible and audible forms, where we find this disproportionate disparity between bearer and beauty, and can only wonder that what it is that capacities certain visible and audible forms to all of a sudden for a moment, reach so far beyond themselves. So I must give us something for discussion here at the end. I don't know, Christopher, if you've got online. I think they're all processing it, because this this is pretty (laughs) new, right?
4: Yes. So no one would have been able to. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I, I do actually have an interesting question from Hans on this, asking how this relates you could maybe briefly, how this relates to Kant's beauty versus the Kant's distinction between beauty and the sublime? Yes. Um, yeah. Is that, you know, does that map onto Hildebrand's distinction? Oh, right, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think um, yeah the sublime in Kant has certainly um, um, some real affinity with this uh, special beauty of visible and audible form. Um, I, I don't know that Kant works out quite uh, this uh, uh, disparity between bearer and beauty, like von Hildebrand does, but this, this kinship, some real kinship of spirit with uh, Immanuel Kant's idea of the sublime that he distinguishes from beauty.
4: Is, is yeah. that in the fact that the sublime is ultimately sort of a moral beauty, or you know, rests rest on yeah. morals and then? And then yeah. Hildebrand, the metaphysical beauty is, again, this sort of. Yeah.
0: I, yeah. I wouldn't say moral, but. Uh, yeah. The, the beauty of visible and audible form of Van Hildebrand is not, uh, you know, a moral beauty. It, um, uh, it's somehow akin, you know, to um, the metaphysical beauty of moral greatness, but it's. Um, And and we see it in the aesthetic experience. It's not exactly an experience of moral greatness. Uh, So, yeah, uh, there's a a very deliberate restraint that von Hildebrandt practices in bringing to evidence this disparity. Letting it stand, but stressing uh, uh, what he uh, calls a certain sursum corda, or an uplifting of the heart that, uh, as it were, transports us uh, uh, by an intimation of another world. Yeah, please.
3: So is this unearthly beauty subjective in the sense yeah. that at different times we could be affected by this great work of music yeah. in a certain way, or, or this scenery in a certain way? And also some people might not have the same reactions. Yeah. Yeah. But could we say that even though it's subjective, that it is transcendent? Because when we do have that response, it yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think, um, maybe would. Um, I mean, he was he was a defender of uh, objective good, objective beauty, objective morality. Uh, and 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 here too, I think he would say, um, whoever hears, um, let's say um, one of those Mozart melodies I heard there with the Pittsburgh Symphony just. Um, a couple of weeks ago, this um, uh, clarinet concerto, the adagio on that uh, piece of music, which is uh, certainly Mozart, that uh, uh, is uh, uh, one of those uh, heavenly uh, inspirations of uh, Mozart. And, and so Vanildebrand, I think, would say whoever hears such a piece of music rightly, really taking in what's there, will experience this. It's not just totally erratic that one person feels it with a garbage heap and another feels it with Mozart and who knows. No, there's a certain um, objective power of certain audible forms to do what other audible forms can't do. And um, whoever hears it truly and Uh, with real aesthetic understanding we'll uh, find it in the same place but he does say there's something ununderstandable about why exactly these notes uh, uh, in this uh, melody uh, are so unutterably beautiful and and why slightly changed they become plain. Uh, that he uh, somehow uh, respects as ununderstandable. Yeah.
4: Uh, <clears throat> so again, we have this distinction between uh, metaphysical beauty and the beauty of the uh, visual and the mm-hmm. audio uh, forms. Is it the case then for von uh, Wilbrand that people? Uh, or blind or deaf have no access to this latter type yeah. of beauty. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it um, depends. If they become deaf later in life, like Beethoven, they may still uh, have it. But uh, you know, a person uh, uh, born deaf would have no access. No, that's that clearly follows. Uh, or born blind have no access to. That beauty of visible form. Uh, yeah, that,
4: and so that that follows. In uh, the case going back to some of our earlier discussions yeah. in the week, that that beauty and appreciating that value really is not central to you know being a moral person. It's sort of yeah. a, a bonus, if you will. Yes, right. No, no.
0: It it uh, it may be that through no fault of your own, you're cut off from this beauty. And the blind and deaf person may have a sense of various kinds of metaphysical beauty, the kindness of people who help them. They're in a position to experience that kindness, its moral value, and its distinct beauty. But the beauty of visible and audible form would not be available for them, uh, as, a, as it were, accentuating the cross that goes with being Deaf blind. Yeah. yeah, please. The
3: beauty of these material forms would be perceived by, by the heart as yeah. you fall in love with the yeah. uniqueness of the person. Yeah. Like, if that's the case, let's say we don't need to um, be intellectually trained. Yes. To appreciate the beauty of something that is truly beautiful.
0: Oh, that's right. No, yeah, uh, that—that's certainly uh, true. That um, this uh, experience of uh, the beauty of visible and audible form, especially of these particularly potent beauty, uh, is very much an experience with the heart. It's not. uh, (coughs) It doesn't involve. Intellectual operations and high intelligence are no great help, but it's aesthetic sensibility and a certain uh, responsiveness of the heart that uh, that's one uh, experience. Uh, uh, this beauty.
3: I'm coming to the contemporary belief that, for example, you would be you are not able to appreciate the beauty of the piece of art because you haven't been educated yes. sufficiently. Yeah, yeah. Or, in, right, yeah. to
0: understand yeah. Yeah.
3: that that would be false, because true beauty yeah. would be evident to anyone, well, especially yeah. like this yeah. supernatural kind of beauty.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly, yeah, the beauty in nature, uh, you know, the grandeur of, uh, uh, sunset or the starry sky that come so marvel that uh, that doesn't require any education. It uh, just requires uh, an awakened human heart. It may be that the wrong kind of education is a liability uh, for uh, really uh, experiencing the, uh, the beauty of the world. Yeah. No. But it's, it's the, uh, this is why I put together in today's meeting as uh, a the theme of the heart and beauty, because uh, uh, these uh, experiences, these aesthetic experiences, that with this mysterious transcendence to them that he describes are uh, uh, as a certain um, susceptibility of the heart, which is far more at work than any acuity of the intellect. Yes?
4: I have another <clears throat> follow-up question about this. Why uh, does he limit it just to the visible and the audible, and not yeah. like the scent, the scent of a rose? Yes, right. The sort?
0: Yes, right. Well, he does um, uh, acknowledge that uh, certain uh, aromas, especially in conjunction with visible form, uh, can be a certain enhancement. Now, it, so it, it's not only visible and audible, but also um, uh, you know, uh, the aromatic uh, can have definite aesthetic qualities. But I think he thinks that when it comes to this, let's just say, unearthly beauty, it is above all the visible and audible that uh, uh, provide the basis, the mysterious basis That's already in Plato's, uh, in Plato that um, these two senses of seeing and hearing have uh, a special affinity. Beauty. Yeah. What? What? Uh, yes, please, Brad. I, I Excuse think, me. I,
1: have. I, mean, um, I think kind of going on with, um, what i interesting earlier. Sometimes it's hard to, in a sense, argue with those who, uh, who want to uphold. Really perverse forms of art as something yeah. beautiful. Yeah. But yeah. Art is so just such out of there. Yeah. I feel this beautiful. Mm-hmm. It can be a very kind of moral uh, yeah. you know, kind of thing to, to say, but yeah, uh, yeah. there is a, there is kind of a sinking yeah. into yeah. morality into these yeah. these visual art forms, yeah. it really seems like you once you kind of really disconnect it, you kind of yeah, it becomes very difficult to yeah. argue that
0: really yeah. those well, well, I think what you. Find more with, um, uh, with with certain kinds of avant-garde art is not so much the claim that something is beautiful that you don't find beautiful, but that the aesthetic excellence of it doesn't have anything to do with beauty. That's a very widespread position. Some artists don't even want beauty; they think it's you know bourgeois corruption. Beauty, so they want other. They want energy. They want you know. Challenge they want shock effect, but it's it's other aesthetic qualities than beauty. Uh, So the the debate is more fundamental over beauty, but whether um, art really should be centrally tied to beauty.
1: Does he have any definition of what art is?
0: Well, in in his view of
1: the standard of what you can actually call art. Yeah, yeah.
0: In in his view, it it. the centers primarily around the beautiful. Uh, but, um, and he, he doesn't enter in, that, that would be an interesting development of Hildebrand. Um, he doesn't enter into <coughs> debate with those who want art uh, which speaks completely apart from beauty. Uh, that he would have had little sympathy for, but it would take f- further work on his basis uh, to. Uh, to deal with that situation in the contemporary art world. Yeah. I have all kinds of
4: good questions coming in now, um,
0: <laughs> and we're almost at the end of the I, it's, it's true, period. I, but I have to know
4: um, <laughs> does von Hildebrand in, in the aesthetics give any sort of guidelines on doing the phenomenological aesthetics? Yeah. Um, you know, and even you know, so that we can do it ourselves, even uh, yeah. have our own phenomenological
0: aesthetic appreciation. Um, yeah. Is there a method for that? Method? <laughs> well, or, uh, you know, um, I, I don't know. I guess I would
4: ask, so is, is the it is in any way distinct from yeah. the
0: phenomenological method employed throughout the rest yeah. of the corpus? No, I think he uh, would just say here, too, back to the things <laughs> themselves, back to the primary sources of experience. He, he would make the point, uh, with with aesthetics that you shouldn't really get into aesthetics if you don't have some lived experience of art and beauty. Uh, um, You've got to bring to this branch of philosophy some uh, more than abstract sense of art and beauty. Otherwise, you can't fruitfully philosophize. You lack the basis and experience for Doing fruitful work in aesthetics. Um, you know that famous passage in Rudolf Otto where he begins by saying, I ask the reader to make present some experience of the holy, and if the reader can't, he should put this book down. It has nothing to say to him. So <laughs> there are certain experiences you've got to bring to certain areas of philosophy in order to think fruitfully. And so, uh, here in aesthetics, one needs to you know, have a living relation to art and beauty and nature in order to uh, have something significant to say. Yes?
2: Uh, could this be extended to
1: something beyond this experience, beyond art and music? And the reason why I say it is is because I never quite understood uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay's Malay, um, poem Euclid alone has looked on beauty there. Uh-huh. So I don't know. She's using something yeah. else besides art and music, which doesn't yeah. make, make sense to me. But uh, is it yeah. possible? Am I missing something?
0: Uh, yeah, beauty in geometry. geometry. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, philosophers have often talked about the beauty of the circle, oh, okay. and so uh, that
3: doesn't seem quite to be the same as Mozart. Yeah.
0: No. No, it's not. It. Uh, is it exactly this unearthly beauty? But, but Hildebrand, I think, would acknowledge a certain aesthetic quality that over and above uh, all the properties that Euclid explores, there are certain aesthetic excellences and even a certain beauty um, in, in such a shape. Um, yeah, but to see Euclid alone has done yeah, it, that's, what said. Uh, that's <laughs> a stretch. Of course, then you may bring up all the mathematical bases of music and throw a different light yeah. on, um, on that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, let's, all right, please. We're not going to cut off urgent questions.
3: Does he tie in any way aesthetics and morals? Like when he said, you know, the, you can have subjective satisfaction the destruction yeah. of the mood. Could translate that in destruction of the beautiful. Yes, and it would be still subjective, or is an objective thing.
1: Okay.
3: Yeah. He connects in any way yeah. beauty with good, or is doesn't enter in this kind of discussion.
0: Beauty with good. Yes,
3: yeah, with yes. Assigns a, a and more dimension to to the yes. search for well, the beautiful. Th- he
0: does. No, he does. Uh, connected in the sense that this fundamental moral virtue of reverence that we've talked about again and again in these three meetings, um, reverence, he thinks, is very important to really perceiving beauty fully. Uh, Now, other things too, uh, moral uh, and aesthetic sensibility that a person may, through no fault of their own, lack. But uh, uh, when the aesthetic, uh, equipment is there in a person. It takes also uh, this, this reverence. In other words, the world of the beautiful is um, a region in this world of value, uh, in the sense of uh, And uh, reverence is all important for uh, appreciating it, as it is in general, uh, for experiencing value. Right? It's, uh, certainly what he thought. Please. What is this thoughts between beauty and time? Mm-hmm. As in one time, a, a period in your life where yeah. you you look at an object and it looks yeah. a certain way, yeah, yeah. Or, well, or a person, for that yeah. matter. Well, yeah, he he um, sometimes remarks on certain um, moments of susceptibility, uh, where the beauty of a thing really uh, fills you. Uh, Fascinates you, and um, other moments, perhaps when it's hardly accessible to you. Uh, and, uh, but for him, that, that, that you have a subjectivity more on the side of the human experiencer, not exactly on the side of beauty itself. He would say that um, uh, even metaphysical beauty, you know, can be um, more strongly experienced at one time than at another. Time you feel like you've got no access to it at all, um, no states of um, depression can completely uh, cancel out uh, uh, the aesthetic sensibility. Uh, and so that um, uh, susceptibility to beauty at different times uh, is certainly acknowledged uh, by him Um, and, and, and you know obviously that's a, p- a point where early on the, the child doesn't maybe recognize beauty or hasn't developed an ear for music and then does and, um, so, but that's um, not the child investing the thing with beauty but um, becoming alive to a beauty that it first of all couldn't couldn't appear
1: it seems like I'm kind of in connection with what you said the first day. For example, in, in music um, or in sound in general, you need time to yeah. perceive. Yeah. Um, music. You listen to, it takes ten minutes to listen to something. Yeah. Or, music or something like that. Yeah. time is part of that very phenomenological right. experience. Of right. You yeah. A,
0: a yes. Loop. Right. Right. The, uh, music. With the music. The thing is situated in time and uh, unfolds in time. But then I mean, you bring up the other dimension of time, where the whole temporal object is uh, at one moment in my life accessible and at another uh, not accessible. Yeah, what else, Christopher, we could take one more. Uh,
4: I don't think I have any others right now. We've been having some discussions about this uh-huh. chronological method. So if you do have any more insight right. on that, it, <laughs> is, it has generated a fruitful discussion here. Yes, there. good. Um, but, uh, so well, about let
0: me conclude by saying this, that the Legacy Project has produced various translations of Van Hildebrand. It's projecting mm. more, but right at this moment, we are in the midst of um, translating his treatise on aesthetics all 1,000 pages of it. Christopher himself was helping last summer with that. And we hope that within a year or two, that will be published and available to English? in English, yes. We're translating it from German into English. So uh, for the first time, never, ever been heard it's heard never been, been before. Uh, translated before. And uh, it's uh, really a, a, a hidden treasure and we're making it accessible uh, uh, by getting it into English, uh, and you can find out about that uh, translation and its publication through the website of the Legacy Project. But that Are is in the in the making right now. Are
1: all this work still
0: under copyright? Uh, no, um, uh, m- 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 many of the German copyrights have lapsed. And then so Have they
3: been loaded on Project Gutenberg, do you know?
0: that I don't know. I'd have to check with my son <coughs> or maybe Christopher. Uh, yeah, I, I can answer this. We're
4: in the process, so a lot of them are out of copyright or we have the copyrights or are in the process of acquiring the copyrights. Um, <clears throat> we are, as John and you mentioned, um, working right now on digitizing all of these, making them searchable so they'll be available online. There are some that are still in print um, for which we do not have the copyright. <clears throat> we're hoping to be able to get those, perhaps we may or may not, um, but the bulk of his works, uh, both in English and, uh, shortly thereafter in German, should be available. Uh, we're hoping we're hoping very ambitiously to accomplish this by you know, the fall, uh, begin rolling these out, and then every few months roll out a few more. So, yeah. uh, whereas right now there really is, you know, there, there we have many more books now available than there were a few years ago. Mm-hmm. There's still many more that are very hard to find.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah, we uh, have very ambitious publication plans. That, it, um, it is ambitious. Uh, we will be uh, hearing about if you get our emails and follow um, the website. Well, I think uh, with that we are at the end, and even a little over the end of the period. So uh, I just thank you all for your uh, participation, you. your interest. That um, uh, it's been uh, a very rewarding experience for me to share all of this uh, with you. And uh, maybe we can, in some other setting, uh, continue it in the future. So thank you all very much.